Today's podcast is brought to you by 13 Star Designs. 13 Star Designs is a unique vinyl and embroidery shop where you can purchase customizable quirky home decorations and the fan favorite, the world famous dick mark, the first penis shaped bookmark. And coming soon, they will be the official retailer of the Podcast Was On Fire merch. Shop today at facebook.com slash 13stardesigns. That's 13 spelled out, Star Designs. Hi everybody, I'm Josh. I'm Alyssa. We are here with episode three of the podcast was on fire. And it wasn't my fault. A spoiler-free run-through that examines the good, great, and the problematic in the Dresden Files book series written by Jim Butcher. We discuss our favorite parts of the saga, the lore, the world building, our favorite characters, and also the yikes male gaze type stuff. I've read the books, Alyssa has not, and that brings us up to speed here. Let's see, how are you doing today? Wonderful. How are you doing? I am very excited. This is a, a lot more action-packed than uh, last week's episode, and certainly a little bit more of an upper, although there's some sad parts too. Um, the very busy portion. Yeah, it is like every... All action all the time here. Um, I do love the way he writes the uh, action scenes. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to discuss the conclusion to Stormfront today. It's the first of 17 novels. Last two episodes, I've been saying 18. Um, maybe I have an advanced copy of 12 months. You don't know me. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, like I said, um, still a long saga that we're going to get through. By the time we get there, I think 12 months will be out. Um, so, uh, just to kind of get us up to speed here, um, like I said, this is the first novel in the series. We met our hero, Harry Dresden, a down-on-his-luck private investigator, who also happens to be the only practicing wizard in Chicago. Picked up a couple of cases. Uh, he works with the Chicago PD. Obviously, if you guys are here, you've probably read it all, um, so I'm not going to get too deep. But um, the last episode, the middle chunk here, kind of Act 2, we saw the pieces moving around the board so that Harry's basically all alone. Um, and it was a little bit clunky as far as, you know, technique wise, but it, it, it did the job. So we have Harry all on his own. Um, he just went to uh, track down um, Monica Sells because he realized the cases are connected. And I realized last week I kind of jumped into chapter 21 in the discussion there. Um, so I do apologize. Certainly if there's any spoilers in there, but, um, yeah. Um, you know, anything else you want to add there before we get going, Liz? No, I, I don't. Yeah. Uh, did we, we did discuss chapter 20, correct? We did chapter 20 and I kind of, in my discussion, I do a lot of my notes, my, my notes I take during the audiobook, So sometimes I just blast through chapter breaks. So I do apologize. Gotcha. I mean, I'll do better. Um, but yeah. Awesome. All right, chapter 21 uh, picks up right where we left off last week. He's still in uh, Monica Sell's kitchen, um, and she's a wreck. They just had their soul gaze, and obviously anytime you soul gaze Harry, you uh, it's an experience. He, Like he said earlier in the novel, he doesn't like poking around in there, but everybody who looks at his soul 
has a rough time. Um, there's some darkness in there. And he, he touches on that as we go through this third act here today. Um, so he's still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Now he knows that uh, it's Monica and Victor are kind of involved. And we get through basically the exposition dump of, of solving kind of the mystery here and getting it all out in the open. Uh, Victor Sells is Monica's husband and he is the shadow man. He is the guy that's been um, making the three eye. And he basically got into black magic. We're not sure how he got into it, but you can see through her description kind of what, uh, you know, Lisa was touching on last week where black magic, it, it breaks you. It changes you. Um, you know, he, he got, he would laugh and scream and get hysterical and set the, the drapes on fire on accident. Um, he, he lost control kind of of himself, his emotions and his power um, as he got deeper into the black magic, which is something interesting. Um, and uh, you, you can see there's, go ahead. And rather reasonable, if you think about it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's that dissension into madness, madness. Especially when you think about how Harry talks about magic as like this pure thing coming from yourself. And when you pervert it, you're perverting yourself and you're breaking, you know, it, it makes sense. You're, uh, it has to take its toll. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, she is kind of the abused wife trying to take care of the kids and keep quiet. You know, Harry says that the kitchen is her sanctuary. Um, she has all these little cow decorations all over the place. Um, and here we learn, which I spoiled last week, I guess, that Jennifer Stanton, our victim from the first uh, murder in the hotel, uh, was her sister. Um, you know, in, in that chapter, when he gets back to meet Monica, you know, we mentioned it last week that Harry, he makes a connection between the two of them, um, their hair. And uh, this is why, because he recognized something uh, as he was sexualizing the corpse. He recognized something of uh, Monica, no last name, Monica Sells. Um, so he, she basically explains the whole, whole, the whole deal. She puts it out, out there that Victor was using first he was using magic just normal himself his will and then he started to use more emotions he used um monica's fear and then he eventually figured out he could use lust and he could add basically he he got investors and that's where the becketts come in the becketts have a an axe to grind with marcone and that's how victor got them involved to tell them that they're going to get their revenge on marcone for killing their daughter or who they feel is responsible for their daughter's death and um yeah that's how he made started making the three eye and she said she tried you know he told her to drink it um you know as my, as your husband i want you to understand to see what i see and she drank it and she said it was awful and terrible but she needed more you know, he mentioned that it hooks worse than crack um and he started laughing and cheering because he knew that he he got it he got the recipe and then he started to mass produce it and they would kind of rotate people having sex and the orgies out at the lake house to make the um potion and yeah basically she said she, she the reason she went to harry is she said she said she saw him, him start looking at the children and at that point she realized she couldn't just be the quiet you know quiet mouse kind of wife she needed mm -hmm. to get out and she didn't know how and so she told her sister and her sister went and confronted victor and that is almost certainly why he killed her because he didn't want his wife and kids to be taken away from him. Um, and as Harry uh, walks out, he realizes he needs to find Victor. And the best way to do that would be to get the cops involved. 
you know, they can have, you know, they can coordinate with the law enforcement by the lake house and they can use all the tools at their disposal. But because of he lied to Murphy, he doesn't have that option. And so he's kind of floundering. You know, another option would be try to use Marcone and he blew that one. Um, so he really is out of options. He's all by himself. Um, one of the lines I really like in here is, uh, he kind of convinces himself. Harry is, he's not very self-assured, but at the end of the day, you know, he is a powerful guy. And, and he, you know, there's a line where he says, if you're going to kill me, you're going to have to shove your magic down my throat. Um, you know, (laughs) he he finds the resilience that he's going to fight back and he's going to figure it out. Um, because he does have something to connect him to Victor. He has a talisman. Yes. And uh, that talisman is in his office. And also in his office is Murphy. Uh, so he heads back to his office. He gets, he, he calls his office. Uh, this is actually the end of your chapter, but she calls it and finds out Murphy's there. And um, he tells her, stay out of my desk. And she's obviously suspicious and asks what he's hiding. And he gets in a cab and heads down to his office. So I do like, uh, I do like the line when he thrust his cash at him and said, "Give me there five minutes ago." Again, oh, kind of like cabbie. cheesy noir stuff that I. I Very. It, it works. It works. Yeah, um, and this we've got a really good again the description of the. The entrance. This is a very, uh, I can picture this in my head, very noir, uh, you know, with the heroes coming upon a, um, a suspicious and unknown area. You know, the door to my office was ajar. I could hear my ceiling fan squeaking on its mounting underneath the labored wheezing of my own breath. The overhead light wasn't on, but the reading light on my desk must have been, because yellow light outlined the doorway and a latest swath of gold across the floor of the hall. I stopped at the threshold. My hands were shaking. So much I could hard, I hardly hold my staff and rod. That's when he calls out to her and he can smell gunpowder. So some shit's going down. She tried, she tried to shoot the scorpion. Yeah, basically. And uh, he also hears a labored breathing and a faint moan. And then he hears the scuttling, which is the uh, Victor Sells little beastie, which I love that. Uh, and he realized it had hurt his friend. And so he enters the hero that he, sorry, he enters the office like a hero with his, his, the Nora hero with a gun, but he's enters with his staff and a rod, which I love. Uh, and that physical dis- description is so fantastic that you can hear it. You can smell it. Uh, it's very similar to like how he described the hotel room. And I love that. It's kind of gives you visceral. Yes. It's very visceral, but it's also, uh, it gives you a setting. A lot of the scenes we go into, we don't have as clear of a setting. And this, you very much can hear, all of your senses are, are taken, uh, taken into account here. Um, so uh, he, you know, goes in with his rod and staff alight like a, like a hero with his gun. And we get, a, another, we get a description of the physical space of the room, exactly where everything is. To the right of the door is a wall lined with filing cabinets and a couple of easy chairs. Cabinets were shut, but something could have been hiding behind one of the chairs. I slid to my left, checked behind the door of the office, and pressed my shoulders to the wall, keeping my eyes on the room. This is a great physical area of the room, and and a lot of his descriptions are very cinematic, but this is literary, because he's on the right, there's that, on the left, there's this, and it, it's, but it works. 
it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a change in his general descriptive style descriptive style because there's less of like at the beginning there were the sounds the feelings here it's like okay this is exactly what is in the room obviously yeah, I, it's important I, I definitely feel like again I'm, I'm not a writer so like it's hard mm. for me to just kind of like the vibe is definitely different in this chunk of the book than mm -hmm. than the first couple and it could just be because it's so actiony it could just be because you know as he gets through the process he understands you know where the pieces are going and he's yeah. just moving them in the right you know like i said he's moving pieces um around the chessboard but um it definitely does it, it feels different which is interesting yeah not in a bad yeah. way at all yeah um so then we get a description of murphy and in this one i literally wrote my notes description of murphy but really unsexualized go jim uh <laughs> Because he describes her as in her physical state. I mean, that's weird, like, extra description. Like, she's got a cub, cub satin jacket. Like, okay. Yeah, hey, it's a, hey, we're in Chicago. Um, but it's very much, this is a much more emotional description of her versus a uh, male gazy description of her. And I really, really appreciate it in this moment. Um, and so he he kind of, you know, say you know, Murphy, you know, it's me, it's me. And then they go through a little bit of uh, banter where she says, can't believe it, you bastard. Murphy wheezed. I felt her stir a little. You set me up. And then, you know, hush, you've been poisoned. And then, you know, they go back and forth. They have a little bit of banter, which is, it's noir and it's so Murphy and, 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 and Harry, it's, it, it works. And, you know, he calls 911. And uh, she tries to arrest him, you know, and this is where the, it's very, they're, they're, it's great back and forth. She's a red hot mess and she's still a badass. You're under arrest, she, she wheezed, you son of a bitch. Wait until I get you in an interrogation room. You aren't going anywhere. I stared at her, stunned. Murph, I stammered. My God, you don't know what you're doing. Like hell. And she, this is when she puts a uh, handcuff around him. And he, he calls her, you stubborn bitch from hell. I felt at a loss for a second, <laughs> then shook my head. I've got to get you out of here before he comes back. And at that point, the scorpion explodes around the corner and attacks him. And uh, he feels something cool and wet on his cheek. And that's when he realizes it's venom. Uh, he does battle. He, you know, he basically is fighting this gigantic scorpion and he's got a hole in his leg now from the scorpion with the venom. He realizes that Murphy is, has been poisoned by this creature. Uh, and, you know, Murphy says, oh, it won't do any good. Stop fighting it. I got, I'll get to answers from you somehow. And it's, it's very, it's kind of, I can, I can kind of picture it. It's very cinematic in this portion is very cinematic where it's the banter the fighting the the you know he's fighting her with the banter he's fighting the scorpion and it's kind of a great interaction and she mentioned something at this point um you know he uh he he says this is again we get a little bit of her backstory sometimes murph i panted you make things just a little harder than they need to be anyone ever tell you that he scoops her up and then she says my ex-husband's <laughs> which is Fantastic. Because that is your cliche homicide detective where they have multiple exes. And they're usually married, they're have... married to the force. Exactly. They're married to the job. And at this point, we find out that the, the, the uh, scorpion venom has hit her so much that uh, 
he, she's going blind. She can't see. And so they're handcuffed. He's trying to save her. And once again, he's hamstrung by the person he's with. And just like with the, the initial encounter with the toad demon, where he's, he's limited in what he can do because of the person he's with. He says, if my hands had been free, I would have taken up my staff and rod and done battle. But I didn't like my odds tied to Murphy. So, And that's kind of a, a common hero trope, right? Yes. Like superheroes, you know, like it was, you know, Buffy was the first Slayer ever to have, you know, friends that help her out, you know, because it puts the people around you in date. That's why there's secret identities exist, right? For yes. Superheroes. I was just going to mention the superheroes in Lois Lane. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's just, exactly. I, I, I love that train of thought. I, mean, you're, I yeah. apologize. No, no, no. That's that, and, and that's exactly like with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and her friends, where it's the the trope that the hero's only weakness is the people they care about. And at this point, you know, he doesn't have he he couldn't search for her keys to find a key for the the handcuffs. And he says he's thinking very specifically about what the situations that you know what the situation that he is in. And uh, he says, any magic that I could work fast enough to shatter the cuffs in time would probably kill me with flying, flying shrapnel. And there wasn't time to work out a gentler escape spell. Damn it, Dad, I thought. I wish you'd lived long enough to show me how to slip out of a pair of handcuffs. <laughs> Which that's one of those, like, obviously it's a throwback to, the, you know, when his father died and all of that. But it's a great moment. Uh, and then he talk, he describes the, the clattering and the scraping of the scorpion. And my first thought was the scorpion walks like Bianca in her ugly vampire visage. It's just that clickety clack. And I could see it and I can hear it. Just like in that moment with her, you could see it and you could hear it. It's kind of that, uh, that, that parallel motion of how these creepy crawlies are moving. Because oh, in that... In that visage and that, you know, the, with the wings and the black drooping breasts and all of that, she was a creepy crawly. So it, only on a huge level, just like this huge scorpion, which is great. Uh, so they head to the elevator and uh, the ele they wait for a long time for the elevator. They get into the elevator and he realizes, holy shit, the God blessed thing is on the roof. Which this is, again, very cliche movie trope. Where it's, you know, you have your heroes in the elevator, they're getting away, and then he hears the bad guy on the roof. You're like, son of a bitch. Um, but at this point, he remembers he has a bracelet of shields around his wrist. And he's trying to focus on it, but it's really awkward with Murphy. He's holding Murphy. So he lays her down. And at this point, he uses the power of that bracelet to keep the scorpion away for a moment. Again, he focuses his will, which is fantastic. A scorpion that's the size of, of some French cars. <laughs> yes, yes. It was just, I love that description too. That tells you this, he's big. He's not the size of a Mack truck, but you know, he's and a decent size. It's continuing to grow throughout the encounter too. Yes, it's pulling energy, it's pulling power or whatever, which is terrifying if you think about it. Uh, so we get him in, um, we get him. We have Will again in action as, as a protector. He gets in the elevator and uh, he pushes at the buttons in the elevator and nothing happens. A second later, there is a cough of smoke and the lights behind the buttons went out, leaving me in darkness. Emergency lighting comes on for a second. It pops out. Okay, and then, sorry, this is when he hears the outside the elevator shaft 
the shrieking metal. And he actually says, you've got to be kidding me. And he repeats it a couple <laughs> times, which is very, it makes me think of Die Hard. Uh, but then yeah, he's- Very every man. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so the scorpion is tearing away the roof of the elevator to get in. And at this point, he's like, how the hell, what can I do? And he, there's a, a great description of using a simple spell. Okay, he uses evocation. I gritted my teeth and started drawing in every ounce of power I had. I knew it was useless. I could direct a firestorm up at the thing, but it would slag the metal it was on, and that would come raining back down on us and kill us, make the elevator shaft too hot for us to survive. But I wasn't just going to let the thing have me either, by God. Maybe, if I did it just right, I could catch it as it leapt, minimize the damage that I did to the surrounding scenery. That was the problem with not being too great at evocation. Plenty of speed, plenty of power, not much refinement. That's what the staff did and the blasting rounds. They were designed to help me focus my power, give me pinpoint control. Without them, I might as well have been a suicide soldier carrying a dozen grenades strapped to his belt and ready to jerk out the pin. This is his mental state. This is him telling us like, oh, I'm fucked. And then it occurs to me. I was thinking in the wrong direction. And this is when he uses his smarts as well as his powers. And he realizes he's going to use air. This was a simple spell, one I'd done hundreds of times, I told myself. It wasn't any different from calling my staff to my hand, just a little bigger. Ventos servitas, I shouted, pouring every bit of strength, every ounce of anger, every shit of fear I had into the spell. Again, we're going with the, the strength of emotions. We just heard about... You know, Victor Cell is using lust. Well, here he's using anger, fear, strength, which is fantastic. And, you know, this is uh, where we hear the elevator, you know, being ripped off. The, the, the critter is trying to get into them and attack them. And then he realizes that maybe this isn't going to work this way. I like how he says, I, I feel like I was forgetting something after he blasted the wind up. You know, they blasted the... They, smushed the scorpion on top yes. of the uh, yeah okay so at the top it floor. shoots it all the way up car, the car shut up um he said in a less than a half a dozen of my frantic heartbeats and when you think about it when your heart is slamming then that's fast that's real fast uh so he car slams up and then it's like oh yeah gravity he even said he he used more power than he meant mm -hmm. to so he shot up. Yeah, and it know, squished him. Like, you know, if you think about a small scorpion, if you step on it, you're going to get some goo. And on this way, he got a little bit more goo. And it's the magical Gross. goo. And you could just think of it like the ectoplasm of like, from like Ghostbusters. Uh, I like that. We, we, get some, we get some fresh lore in this chapter where he talks about anytime you're adding, you're creating mass or giving a spell mass, you know, you, ectoplasm is the, the substance. Yes, it's colorless uses. goo, the ectoplasm of magically created mass spattered out between the crush plates and hide and down the, into the car. At the same time that Murphy and I were hurled up, meeting the goo halfway. And he's protecting her. And then he realizes, oh shit, we're going to fall. And so what he does is, again, he uses magic. And he's now was the time for the bracelet, and I didn't waste a heartbeat grabbing Murphy close to me and bringing the shield into being around us. He only had a couple seconds, so he had to do it just on instinct. He couldn't make it too brittle, couldn't make it too strong, because those are things that would kill them. So he had to give it 
almost like a bouncy ball. It had to have some flexibility to distribute the force. Again, this is basic physics. And we're using these pseudo, these pseudoscience kind of elements of magic, but in combination with the real science of physics. It's fantastic. Uh, and so he basically creates a ball of what he says, uh, there was a sense of pressure all around me as though I had been abruptly stuffed in styrofoam packing peanuts. And they fall and they fall. And the elevator hits the bottom. The elevator, this is another great visual. The elevator doors gave a warped, gasping little ding, then shuddered open. A pair of EMTs with emergency kits in hand stood staring at the elevator, at Murphy and me, their jaws hanging open to their knees. Dust billowed everywhere. I was alive. I'm just picture, picturing it slamming to the ground, you know, the dust, the, not explosion, but, you know, the dust blowing yep. everywhere, and, like, you know, pieces of the floor and stuff. And then the ding, yes, the door opens. exactly. Just, it's very cinematic. Such a great... With, oh, and I the guy's it. standing there with their jaws hanging open. It's fantastic. He starts ranting about Victor Shadowman, and it's a little wacky-doo. Uh, and so, and then he realized he says yeah an adrenaline rush the size of the colorado or the uh, yes, colorado River yes <laughs> uh and you know the champion i held still on the adrenaline rush and then he realizes you know he gets out into the rain the wet slaps of raindrops on my face shut me up made me cold sober faster than anything else in the world could have done i was suddenly acutely aware of the handcuffs around my wrist still of the fact that i did not have victor ta victor's talisman to use to turn his own power against him Victor was still out there, out at his lake house. He still had a hank of my hair, and he was still planning on ripping my heart out as soon as he possibly could when the storm gave him the strength he was needed. He, sorry, the strength he needed. That's a holy shit moment. A big, fat, holy shit moment. And, but he was alive. They were alive. And at that moment, he realized the storm's coming. He's got to act. And that's the end of that chapter. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. So um, Harry uh, is down with the EMTs now. They're outside in the rain. He uses the ectoplasmic goo to slip out of um, slip Murphy's hand out of the um, handcuffs. So he's got both rings now dangling around his wrist, and um, he bolts. So the EMTs want to take care of him. They you know they want to look him over. Obviously Murphy's the priority, and he says no, no, no. I, I got to get out of here. Um, and he heads over to McAnally's pub, which um, you know. Obviously, there's something going on, so it's basically packed with the supernatural crowd. And um, he asked Mac to borrow a car. Mac tosses him the keys to his big old Trans Am. And uh, look who it is behind us. Goddamn Morgan. Um, and he tells Harry, you know, you're not going anywhere. You can't kill anyone else. Sit down. Um, he's like, dude, I, I'm going to die if I sit down. Uh, so as he's sitting down, you know, and this is an important part, you know, earlier in the book when morgan had his sword out he's official white council warden when morgan doesn't have his sword out he's just a douchebag and uh mm -hmm. but in this case morgan has the sword out of the sheath he is acting on official white council business and harry swings a big old chair and smacks him uh, and then it bounces off him and he goes back again for seconds um and morgan is out like a light and uh, he says, give us a good line there about how in the movies, the chair breaks, but in real life, you break. Uh, it's just a good. Spectacular. He smushes him. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he, again, he gets into the woe is me kind of situation, but he realizes it's just me and, and that's going to be enough. Um, you know, do I have a great job or what? 
<laughs> and then he, you know, he says, I drove for my life. The, one of the best parts about this is that Max Carr is an 89 Trans Am, pure white with a big eight cylinder engine. And the speedometer, he says the speedometer goes to 130 miles an hour. And, and in places he went faster than that in the rain. Uh, so as a coroner investigator, that really just made me uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, hey, he was riding the steel hard edge of anger that carried him away from the ruins of his office and through Morgan. You know, hey, but again, the storm is building. And we know the important this at this point, we know how important the storm is. Um, thankfully, it's Sunday. There's not a lot of traffic, which is great. Uh, he tries. He tried to tune in the radio to the weather station, and obviously, it's technology and it's electronics, and he is not good with that because of his powers. We're just lucky the car is running. Exactly. Uh, and he, you know, the storm is coming up behind him. It's heading towards the, the lake, and he says, "He, I could only pray that I was going to get over to Lake Providence before it did." He beat the storm there, and uh, he is. It, again, it's a very visual. He pulls into the gravel drive and you can hear it. I can almost hear it. And he says, the Trans Am slipped to a halt in a shower of gravel and a roar of mighty of mighty engine, then sputtered and gasped into silence. I felt for a giddy second and a half like Magnum P.I. Blue Beetle aside, I could get into this court, sports car thing, which is fantastic. But again, it's very much that like cool guy thing. And then he's like, eh, at least it lasts long enough to get me here. Uh, and... So he gets out of the he gets out of the uh, gets out of the car and his legs hurting probably you know from falling from a high height in the uh, uh, combination of the falling from the high height in the elevator and getting stabbed by a venomous huge scorpion the size of a small French vehicle uh, and he races up to the house and he very uh, astutely stops before he gets too close twenty yards shy that there uh, thinking there could be magical traps or alarms. And this is when he decides that he needs to open his third eye. And so this is where we get the description of, for him, what opening his third eye, opening that other level of consciousness how, is. How great is this description? Oh my gosh, it's fantastic. And it was, it's kind of, you can see it. It's again, very cinematic. He says, the only thing I can say is that I felt as though a veil of thick cloth had been lifted away from me as I opened my eyes again. And not only from my eyes, but from all of my senses. I could abruptly smell the mud and fish odor of the lake, the trees coming around the house, sorry, the trees around the house, the fresh scent of the, of the coming rain preceding the storm on the smoke-stained wind. I looked at trees, saw them not just for, in the first coat of, sorry, saw them not just in the first green coat of spring, but in the full bloom of summer, the splendor of fall, and the barren desolation of winter all at the same time. He's seeing things on multiple levels, and he talks about the house and he says you could feel the heat of summer the cold of winter and then he says i saw the house wreathed in ghostly flames and knew that those were part of its possible future that fire lay down several of the many paths of possibility that lay ahead in the next hour that's it's spectacular oh it's and great. then and then he he sees I, the power I, I just i love the part where he says that like the veil's been lifted mm -hmm. as in he's to stay in the mortal realm, he has to hold back. You yes. I mean? It's just a great, it gives you an idea of, you know, we talked about how, oh, I could use this power. I could do all these things. Like this is what he's talking about. Like he's actively holding back every second, which is yeah. kind of a cool visualization. 
Um, but it also it also gives you a very good de depiction of him because he knows the danger of the power. And he is consciously keeping that third eye closed to control the power. Uh, and this is where he discusses power. He says, the house itself was a place of power. Dark emotions, greed, lust, hatred, all hung over it as visible things, molds and slimes that were strewn over it like Spanish moss with malevolent eyes. Ghostly things, restless spirits moved around the place, drawn to the sense of fear, despair, and anger that hung over it. Mindless shades that were always to be found in such places, like rats and granaries. That's such a brilliant kind of visual, along with that like visceral kind of feeling of these horrible things are drawn to these bad emotions. And he talks about death. Death lay in the house's future, future tangible, solid, unavoidable maybe mine. This is his own foreshadowing. He sees multiple planes of existence on the house of the trees. And that's, that's how strong his vision and power are. And we're learning a lot about how strong that third sight is for him. Since no one had to die tonight, it didn't have to come to that. Not for them and not for me. And this is where he starts talking about the house, the, the, the energy around the house, and he, a sick feeling had settled into him. And, and he describes it as with all of the hate and all of the negative energy, all of its hard hate worn openly upon it to my sight, like a mantle of flayed human skin on the shoulders of a pretty girl with gorgeous hair, luscious lips, sunken eyes, and rotting teeth. It repulsed me and it made me afraid. But something is still drawing him into the house, the power. And that's one of the, the, the draws to all of this. And it seems to, for, for Victor Sells, the power. And it was, it was, nothing could guarantee his safety. Nothing, no matter how strong or powerful he was, like he had said, someone could die. He didn't want them to. It didn't, but it didn't have to come to that. He certainly didn't want him to die. No, he did not. <laughs> um, and, you know, he says he could kill him right now. He could call, him, call down fury and flame on the house and kill it and everyone in it, leave one stone upon another. The, you know, the Shadow Man, Victor the Shadow Man was inside. He was gathering his power to probably kill him. And he's, he says, you know, he could also... He could feel the crackle in the air. He could pull that storm. With such power, I could cast my defiance at the council itself, the gathering of white-bearded fools without foresight, without imagination, without vision. The council. <laughs> oh, yeah. The council. It's a, it's a good villainous refrain that you have no vision. You don't understand. Oh, but power. It's, it's that that ego. Yeah. And, and he calls, and this he says, the council and that pathetic watchdog Morgan had no idea of the true depths of my strength. I have no problem with that description of Morgan. No, but it's, it's just, he's, he is, it's kind of, you can almost see the red glowing behind his eyes. And then at that point, the pentacle burns cold on his chest, the sudden weight that made him gasp. And he, he, he looks down at his hands and his hands are, are, are fisted. They're shaking. And then he says, this is again a brilliant imagery 
It actually kind of reminds me of the lady in white where the, the girl grabs a guy's grabs a kid's hand or the um and walks him into the school or whatever. Um what's the song in that? Oh, I can't remember what it is, but I can see this like very much like a ghostly child. But this is a little yeah. bit different. It's um and then something strange happened. Another hand took mine. Have the you hand ever felt a dream walking. walking. There we go. <laughs> totally. More creepy, creepy movie. Creepy movies from our childhood. <laughs> our mom showed us when we were far too young for these creepy horror movies. Oh, but it, it does definitely affect how our appreciation of art. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Okay. Um, but this is the kind of ghostly part. The hand was slim, the fingers long and delicate, feminine. The hand gently covered mine and lifted it like a small child until I had m- held my mother's pentacle in my grasp. I held it in my hand, felt its cool strength, its ordered and rational geometry. And this is where he realizes, like, he needs to clear himself out. He says, I I took deep breaths, struggling to see clear of the anger, the hate, the lust, the deep lust that burned within me for vengeance and retribution. That wasn't what magic was for. That wasn't what magic did. Magic came from life itself from the interaction of nature and the elements and from the energy of all living beings and especially of people. A man's magic demonstrates what sort of person he is, what is held most deeply inside of him. There is no truer gauge of a man's character than the way in which he employs his strength, his power. This is very much his measure of a man moment where it's like, I'm not that angry, rageful, evil he calms down, he pulls back. And the next sentence is, I was not a murderer. And that's true. He's not. He's not that dark. Technically. Magic. Well, <laughs> I'm going to let, let me, I, I've, I've, I've actually, okay. So in my world of, of coronerness, there are. Coronosity. Coronosity. There are five manners of death, homicide, suicide, accident, uh, undetermined. Of, mm, homicide, suicide, accident. And natural, okay? Suicide is death at the hands of oneself. Homicide is the death at the hands of another. That is literally the technical term. But... So he's a homicider, not a murderer. No, wait, wait, wait. But every murder is a homicide, but not every homicide is a murder. Yeah, I understand. So Harry's a homicider. Yeah. <laughs> he has committed... He has, he has committed homicide. But he's not a murderer. Um... <laughs> see well as far as we know and you know he he's he he's harry blackstone copperfield dresden i am a i was a wizard wizards control their power and the anger evaporated the burning hate subsided leaving my head clear enough to think again this is our yoda moment um where i mean he's he's a jedi he's not a sith okay can we go with that He's got to be a Jedi. He had, he is tortured. He's got it's like Mace you know, Window. He's got a little little darkness in there. He's but. <laughs> got a little. He's got a little motherfucker in him. Um, that is a reference to Samuel L. Jackson. He's not screwing people's mothers. Okay, all right. And so, <laughs> which which staff is yours? Well, this is bad motherfucker on it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so you know he still has he still has his, his third eye open. And he's moving towards the house. And, and he says, you know, that no one stood by him. And for a moment, he thought he smelled a whiff of perfume, familiar and haunting. Then it was gone. And the only one I had to help me was myself. 
And he's, you know, that's going to have to be enough. And this is another great visual that is super creepy and super awesome. But it's the how the scenery is portrayed through his third eye with his sight fully opened. And so I walked through a spectral landscape littered with skulls into the teeth of the coming storm to a house covered in malevolent power, throbbing with savage and feral mystic strength. I walked forward to face a murderous opponent who had all the advantages and who stood prepared and willing to kill me from where he stood within the heart of his own destructive power while I was armed with nothing more than my own skill and wit and experience. Do I have a great job or what? (laughs) I love the snark. I really, really enjoy it. And that's one of the things that Jim Butcher does so well. He, He threads in this humanistic sense of humor because a lot of people, when you're faced with the darkest things that, you know, life has to offer, you'd crack a joke. You know, growing up, our mom's a nurse, our dad worked in trauma, and we would joke about dark shit. And I'm a coroner investigator. I, I literally look at death every day. I and I youth water polo. I try to hide from these things. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but the thing is, it's like, it's like my sense of humor is I have gallows humor, but I also found joy in, in simple things. But that, that gallows humor, it takes some of that stress off, you know, where it's like, I could tell stories, but like, no, that you would not like any of them, Joshi. Nope. Uh, <laughs> I also won't remember them. So go ahead. I <laughs> but that's, out. that's the thing, though. It's just, you know, you have you find that sense of humor. You find that laughter. And this is, you know, he's 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 prepared to go into a destructive force. He's prepared to die if, if it comes to that. And, and he's like, hey, did I have a great job or what? I love it. It's so well orchestrated. And that's how the chapter ends. We see more evidence of like the worse things get, the more confident and self-assured Harry gets, which is just a great, you know, piece of his character is that like when he has time to think it out, think it over and like, you know, he gets the self doubt. That's true of a lot of, again, like I said, I coach youth sports. Like when the kids have time to like think about what they're going to do, they actually almost struggle more than if they just a reaction. That's the same thing. You know, when Harry's just to react and has to do he's great he's cool he's suave he's funny and then when he has time to think it over he just says dumb shit and like embarrasses himself all the time you know um it's just funny a funny piece of his character that gets you know smooths out a little bit but it's again it's great i it really is and and it you like you said it smooths out the character he's not that uh absolutely pretentious pain in the ass hero that's got no fucking sense of humor um so he still has his sight open which eh, seems like a rookie mistake you know to keep it open this long Mm -hmm. um but as he moves inside the house um again with the sight it doesn't go away and that's why this is why why i say it's dangerous um you know he says that the sight of the house will always be with him it was an abomination um you know it's there's so much pain and suffering has been caused from this house, whether it's the actual spell casting of the murders, but also, you know, this is where this is his notice. There wasn't a threshold. Harry just cruised through, right? This isn't his home. This is his, his dungeon. Basically. This is his, his lab, his realm of uh, oh. a place of evil where he creates the three eye, where he, you know, he, where he forces the lust and he, he takes control of the storms. Um, this is a bad place. There's a lot of pain and suffering 
you know, washing out from this location. Um, so he's looking around and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's shadowy and, and dark and, and t- just terrifying. Um, but it's also, you get a measure of how simple Victor is. He's just a dumb brute of a bad guy. He doesn't lock the door. He doesn't have any magical protection. There's no like, you know, spells or tripwires or nothing to keep out someone like Harry. No um, magical booby traps. No magical, no booby traps, magical or otherwise. So he, yeah, he, he's so up his own ass that he thinks he's untouchable. Um, and maybe he is. We'll see what happens in the big finale here. Um, I'm rooting for the hero though. Um, and he see as he goes through the hall, he sees um containers and boxes of of what are very clearly we come oh, to see yes. ocean ingredients um absinthe which sounds like a much better base than jolt cola to any potion and tequila um, <laughs> yes, i'd rather have absinthe than tequila though yeah. that's a, that's what i mean better than tequila oh yeah you're 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 get drunk on absinthe no i have had it but i've never actually gotten drunk on it all times in college we did absinthe nights and it's probably um you know, placebo effect, but yeah. the worm would, you know, it, probably there's not enough to actually affect you, but for some reason, those absinthe, absinthe nights would get interesting. Um, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell all our viewers when they're, or our listeners when they're, when they grow up. Um, interesting nights. Absinthe, though. Good, good memories with absinthe. Back when it was, like, real, not, you had to import it illegally from, like, France or whatever. Um, it's neither here nor there. Um, but, uh, Absinthe is the base. There's glitter of all sorts of colors. There's antifreeze, um, some peyote, I think. There's just all sorts of stuff yeah. that, um, you know, different potion ingredients as he goes through. Um, as he goes in, um, the CD is, uh, see, uh, this, it's kind of a weird, I don't really get it, but it's the same CD is playing mm-hmm. that was in Tommy Tom and Jennifer Stanton's um, hotel room. I don't think it means anything. It's just, weird I, yeah, that was actually something i made a note on is like does it does music have meaning in this because so far it hasn't it just kind of was there uh, let, let's touch on that later because that is an okay. interesting thought there's the way different characters experience magic mm-hmm. um definitely something to think about but um so he goes through um you know he, he recognizes obviously that this is the three eye there's a bunch of made three eye then there's a bunch of ingredients um and the thunder's starting to pick up, and he, he eventually closes his sight as he gets ready to pounce. And he goes up, and we have the Becketts are naked and having sex in one circle. Um, and then Victor is in, the other, is in another circle, um, gathering power of the storm and doing an incantation over a rabbit whose legs are tied up and has Harry's hair um, attached to it, probably tied onto it. Um, so this is the vessel. This is basically the voodoo doll and he's gathering power and he's giving his incantation and he is going to rip the heart out of the rabbit, the poor bunny, um, which in turn will rip the heart out of our poor wizard. Mm-hmm. Um, as he walks in, <laughs> Harry's singing to himself, um, which is great. Um, and he, uh, he fuegos the stereo system. Uh, engulfs it in fire. Um, with Mur- Murphy's handcuffs are dangling from his wrist, which is just a great uh, um, visual. Uh, and he uh, 
throws the um film canister. Mm-hmm. He throws the film canister. Um Victor says, You and he says, Me. There's something I've been meaning to talk to you about, Vic. Um and as he throws it, it's he says, as a weapon, it wasn't much. It's an empty film canister. <laughs> but it was real. And it had been hurled by a real person, a mortal, and it shattered the integrity of the magic circle. Um, so as the film canister crossed above the line of the circle, the circle broke, and the power washed out over the room. It was no longer contained, it was no longer focused, and he couldn't use it for his spell. Um, and last week, I, I, I interrupt, uh, I interrupted, I interrupt, interrupt you too much. I'm, I'm trying to get better. We're trying to figure it yeah. out. Um, okay. But uh, <laughs> it's about how but powerful women are important, and the dude in the in the podcast keeps interrupting the woman. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, re- I recognize my it's a character flaw. I'm being punished for. Um, <laughs> but uh, I wanted I really wanted to, to mention Bob when he throws the sports bottle with the escape potion. He throws it into a magic circle where Harry and um, Susan are near coitusing. Um, sporting. <laughs> they're more doing some mortal sporting. And th- that does not, even though it's a, you know, it's a concrete object, that sports bottle doesn't break the integrity of the circle because Bob threw it. And Bob is a spiritual being. Bob isn't an actual. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it didn't. That's what, why I love that. And why I really wanted to point to it last week, because, uh, you know, in a foreshadowing kind of sense, was that it breaks the circle here because it was thrown by a mortal. So it's not necessarily what you throw, but it's who does the throwing, which is just an interesting, cool lore. The circle has the circle has power of this world. And so it, you know, it can contain creatures from not of this world, but it also can only be broken by creatures not of this, which makes sense, but it's just an interesting, uh, just a good piece of lore there that just kind of sneaks through if you don't really focus on it. Yeah, well, it's the the depth of his exploration of the magic. It's wonderful. And again, very, very much show, don't tell. He doesn't even, he doesn't even say yes. it. You know, it's just kind of, almost. it sneaks by you, you know, if you're not paying attention, which I love. Um, yeah, but he does that a lot. He sneaks things in there where the first time I read it, I didn't see it. Oh, the first time I listened to it, and then I listened to it and read it, and it's like, oh, oh, okay. That's great. And this is going to be a very common refrain, even if it's not repeated verbatim by, for about 17 books now. <laughs> you bastard! Why won't you just die? Uh, which is just... Fantastic. Uh, Harry's got some dog in him, man. I'm saying, he, he's gonna, mm-hmm. he's tough. Um... But uh, you know, this is this is kind of the start of the big action sequence where the Becketts take out guns and they're pa 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 at him. Um, he's hiding behind a um, counter. Um, his his um, uh, what's this game? Bruce Willis moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, he has shoes on. There's no broken glass quite yet. That's good. We'll, we'll see how it progresses. I think he gets shot in the hip. Is that this chapter or next? Um, uh, he does get shot. In, I'm not sure at what point he does get shot in the hip, though. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, but I believe he also knees Victor in the balls. That might also happen. Um, but yeah, it's you know he's there's it's just great. It's a great yeah. fight scene. <laughs> it's a, Victor's expecting him to come at him with magic, and this is again why the uh, the semi-auto magic part yes. of, of this is Harry just. Just runs at him and tries to knee him. He's actually aiming for his stomach, but he misses and gets him in the balls. 
But he's like, by this time I was screaming at him, senseless and incoherent. I started kicking at his head. <laughs> it's just, he's just like, he's so spazzed out that he just starts kicking. Yeah. Like, um, you've got magic, bro. But yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, who needs it? Uh, and then the, the naked Beckett's. I love that every action sequence in this, in this novel, most of the cast is Somebody's, just fucking naked. Somebody's got to be naked. Yeah. It's a lot okay. of nudity. Hey, give the people what they want, right? <laughs> uh, it's going to make a great HBO show one day. Um, <laughs> so the next True Blood. Uh, Victor does his Scorpies, 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 and he gets a bunch of scorpions to uh, start chasing after him. <laughs> the visual of him crab walking back into the kitchen and hiding, uh-huh. which I love. Um, he, uh... <laughs> The storm is going crazy in the room. The Becketts are shooting. He's stuck. You know, there's scorpions coming around him. He's hiding behind a counter. Um, and he says, uh, yeah, the, the scorpions are rapidly growing to monster, to movie monster size. Less than a minute on the clock and no timeouts remaining for the quarterback. All in all, it's looking like a bad evening for the home team. <laughs> yes. And he's, I, you know, and it's just like, it's that sense of humor, but it's that like, Again, it's the Bruce Willis reference, but Bruce Willis always plays Bruce Willis in these action movies, and he always has a quip, and that's very much this is his quip, where he's got those little quips at the ends of each each pair each uh sorry each chapter, and it's great. It really works well, and that's a kind of a lovely way for uh, the chapter to end, where he's just like, oh, "Well, I'm kind of fucked." Yippee guy. Exactly, <laughs> and you know here he's. He's, you know, he's, he literally says, I was so dead. There was no way out of the kitchen, no time to use an explosive evocation in close quarters, and the deadly scorpions would rip me to pieces well before Victor could blow me up with explosive magic or one of the blood maddened Beckett's could get their guns working long enough to put a few more billets in me. <laughs> and then, you know, he's, he's in pain. His hip is beginning to stream with pain because, you know, he's been shot. And he clutches this broom that's next to him, using it like a pitiful weapon. And this is such a great... Okay, I, this I have to... I read verbatim because it, it's just spectacular. This is his Fantasia moment. Yes, this is totally his Mickey Mouse Fantasia moment. He says, and then something occurred to me. Something so childish that I almost laughed. I plucked a straw from the broomstick and began a low and steady chant. A bobbing about in the air with the fingers that held the straw. And reached out and took hold of the immense amounts of untapped energy running rampant in the air and drew them into a spell. Politas! I shouted, bringing the chant to a crescendo. Politas! Politas! The broom twitched. It quivered. It jerked up right in my hands. And then it took off across the kitchen floor, its brush waving menacingly to, sweep the scorpi- to meet the scorpion's advance. The last thing I had expected to use that cleaning spell for when I had laboriously been forced to learn it was a tide of poisonous scorpion monsters. But any port in a storm. It's fantastic. Like, literally, he's got this little Mickey Mouse action going on where it's just sweep, 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 sweep. Sweep, sweep, sweep. I love it. And, you know, he's, I'm pretty sure it got all the dirt on the way, too. When I do a spell, I do it right. <laughs> and, you know, of course, Victor freaks out because of this. And the crazy Beckett starts shooting at the broom. Because, you know, <laughs> as you do. I do love that, like, people just shoot at their problems. It's such a great... Uh, I mean, you know... shooting at the scorpion. They're, sh- they're uh, shooting at a broom. Yeah, yeah. Yep. 
anthropomorphic and, you know, broom. Which oh is so, so fantastic. You know, and, you know, he's bleeding all over the place. And, and uh, you know, Victor's obviously realizing these fucking idiots are not going to stop shooting. So he says, stop shooting, stop shooting, damn you. And, you know, at that point, the broom has pretty much swept all the scorpions off the edge of the balcony, which that is what the point was. You know, and then, you know, Victor breaks the balcony and the, the this is another image where he's holding the piece of straw. Victor breaks, this, breaks the broom and the straw breaks as the energy from the spell fades. And, you know, Victor is, you know, there's no way you can survive this. Give up. I'd be willing to let you walk away. And again, he's I'll using bet. that. Right. He's using that sense of humor. Sure, Vic, I replied, keeping my voice as calm as I could. You're known for having mercy and a sense of fair play, right? All I have to do is keep you in there until the fire spreads enough to kill you, Victor said. Sure, let's all die together, Vic. Too bad about your inventory down there, though. Eh? And, uh, you know, he pitches and moans, and you know, snarling and pitches another burst of flame into the kitchen. And then, then he insults his training. Oh, cute, I said, my voice dripping with scorn. Fire's the simplest thing you can do. All real, all the real wizards learn that in the first couple of weeks and move on up from there. And this is pissing Victor off. He's using Victor's anger against him, and it's fantastic. He's like, shut up. Who's the real wizard here, huh? The one with all the cards, and who's the, who's the one bleeding on the kitchen floor? He says, you're nothing, Dresden, nothing. You're a loser. And do you think you and you think you know why? Because you're an idiot. You're an idealist. He sounds like a bully from a high school movie. It's ridiculous. And, you know, he says he's gonna wipe you off my shoe and keep going like you never existed. And this is where he starts to use his lies. Where where Harry starts to use lies to control Victor. And he's like, the police know all about you, Vic. I told him myself. I told the White Council too. You've never heard of them, have you, Vic? They're like the super friends and the Inquisition all rolled up into one. You'll love them. They're about to take you out like yesterday's garbage. Fantastic. And he's like, oh, you're lying to me, Dresden. You're lying to me. He said, if I'm lying, I'm dying. And then he says, oh, and Johnny Marcone, too. I made sure he knew who and where you were. And, you know, he's, he's pretending that, you know, this isn't, this is not, you stupid son of a bitch. Who put you up to this, huh? Marcone, is that why he pulled you off the street? And he's, he's starting to believe it, but it's driving him mad. And he said, you never figured it out, did you, Vic? Who? Who was it, damn you? That whore Linda, her whore friend, Jennifer? Strike two, strike three. The other side gets a chance to steal. I said, again, these sports metaphors. He figures if he can keep him talking, he might be able to get out. Or he might be able to get the house to cave in on him and kill him. And that's what we want. We want to stop the baddie. And, you know, he said... The Beckett's say, let's kill him and get out of here before we all die. One of the Beckett's has a brilliant idea in their nudity with their firearm. And I said, go hell, go ahead. I said in a cheerful voice, hell, I've got nothing to lose. I'll send this whole house up in a fireball that'll make Hiroshima look like hibachi. Make my day. And Victor is still trying to get this information. Who told him? And, you know, he says he knows that if he gave Monica away at this point and Victor got away, Monica was in danger and he has those morals. He tells the, the uh, crazy Beckett's to go start the car and you know, he's telling him go through the deck because the scorpions will kill anything on the first floor. His baddies are, are kind of working against him to some degree. And then Victor, Oh, Victor in all of his ego 
summons our old friend, the Toad Demon. He says, Kalshak, power thrummed, air shimmered, and shone, began to twist and spiral. Kalshazak, a warbling hiss that seems to come from a great distance, wrestling forward. Kalshazak, and poof, our Toad Demon's there. And this is where we learn a little bit more about our lore. You can't kill demons as such, only destroy the physical vessels they create for themselves when they come to the mortal world. If called again, they can create a new vessel without difficulty. And he says, you know, this is only the second time he's ever seen anybody summon a demon. And the other one, he killed his master after, after he did it. So this is pretty gnarly. This is pretty significant to him because it's not something that people do regularly. And the demon, you know, gives a hiss of frustration and he's. Victor is trying to taunt him. He says, there, Dresden, do you see the strong survive and the weak are torn to little pieces? Then he orders the demon to kill him. And at that point, our hero does actually know what the fuck's going on. He said, my God, Victor, I can't get over how clumsy you are. Because Harry went to school. Uh-huh. <laughs> you really shouldn't just hand someone else a demon's name. So he says to Kalshazak twice. And then he feels like a pressure on his throat, like he's being choked. And he can't say it the third time. And then he's picturing all of the people who could be hurt, all of the people who have been hurt through this. And he says, I had beaten this frog once. I could do it again. And he calls it out for the third time. And the demon howls and hurls itself to the floor, thrashing its limbs like a poison bug, raging and tearing great swaths out of the carpet. So he's having a two-year-old temper tantrum. And Victor's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's telling him to kill him. And he, what has happened is that Harry and has Harry is using the rules of magic in his favor. Names are important. And names. He gave Harry the demon's name. Yes. N. And we're using that lore that we already know. And Victor's like, "What happened? What did you do?" And then Harry gives us a little little history, a little magic magic lesson. The fourth law of magic forbids the binding of any being against its will. I graded. I graded out. Pain was tight around my throat, making me fight to speak the words. So I stepped in and cut your control over it. And I didn't establish any of my own. So we have a free demon who's just chilling at the lake house. So remember earlier when he summons Toot uh, Toot Minimus? Um, and he, he summons Toot Toot by saying Toot's real name. And he says, what was his name? Like, I'm going to give you that. Um, because we're reading, you know, a memoir, a, a case file that he's writing from his wives, from Harry's perspective, right? Exactly. But now, Harry is giving us the name of something far more powerful. Yes. So, presumably, Kalshazak, he either changed the name when he wrote this memoir, uh-huh. or did Harry just give anyone reading this, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's an in... Uh, not incongruous isn't the word I'm looking for. Inconsistent. Inconsistent. Um, which is just, again, I, I, I'm assuming it's just, you know, a quirk of the writing uh, mm-hmm. style where, you know, he got to make a little joke earlier, like, like I'm going to tell you that. Um, and we needed to know that Harry got the name here from Victor. But it's just an interesting, from a lore standpoint, 
Victor didn't just give Harry the name. Victor gave us the name of this demon. Um, which Harry, you would expect, as a member it, of the White Council, would not want to do. Yes, but it appears to need power to be able to call a demon. Well, and then why not call, give us Toot's name either? Because Toot Toot is his friend. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> you he want to fuck with Count Shazak? Go do it. But Toot, you're not leave, bothering Toot. Exactly. Leave Toot Toot alone. Leave Toot Toot alone. <laughs> He's got pizza to eat. And uh, then, you know, he realizes he can't kill him with magic. He can't kill Victor with magic. It would have brought a death sentence to his head. And, but I could stand by and do nothing. And that's exactly what I did. I smiled. I smiled at him, closed my eyes, and did nothing. And this is, a, this is one, one of my favorite moments in, this, in the book, where all of these sentences, so many of these sentences that Harry uses are long and complex, but that, that, that paragraph, that I studied him for a moment. I couldn't kill him with magic. He's slowing down. He's got these slow, shorter sentences, and then they get shorter. It, it feels like it's not slow. It's, it's like, bah, 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 bah. Kind of the, like the, the beat well, of, the, of the pace of the scene. Like, because it's an action scene, you know, it, it gets... But the, the, the moments, like, this is... I studied him for a moment. Building the anticipation. Yeah, I, I couldn't kill him with magic. I didn't want to. And it would have only brought a death sentence on my head. But I could stand by and do nothing. And then Victor says, it's only got time to eat one of us. And he picked me up to hurl me towards the demon. I objected with fragile tenacity. Such a we, good line. <laughs> mm-hmm. but fragile again, the, tenacity. Then, then we've got these short, we grappled. Fire raged, smoke billowed. We don't get a lot of description about that, but it doesn't matter. We grappled, fire raged, smoke billowed. We're changing our, our pace here with the sentence structure. Uh, the demon came closer. Lightning again, as eyes. the action's coming to a crescendo, it really is, I mean, it's masterful craft just the writing and action again one of the things he does best is write these action scenes um the 17th novel is about a 300 page action scene um but uh it's it's just one of the things he does really really well mm-hmm. but you can it, how you it would, before this conversation i would have had a hard time explaining why you know what i mean like he's mm-hmm. creative he, he comes up with cool situations he's got cool characters but this is like as you read through it the way the writing is, the structure yeah. of the sentences, like enhances the feeling of what you're supposed to get out of the scene. It's like it's so subtle, and like I said, if you're not doing a deep read, you know, when you're like kind of discussing it and break it down, you don't even notice, but your brain does, and like yeah. your heart starts beating faster. As it's just, it's just so great. Again, like he he's not without flaws, but this is such great, such great writing. It is, and and it's it's. It's stylized, yes. Um, and, you know, I don't know if he actually intended to do this. Like, but this is what, this is one of the things I saw where it was just like, he, the way he uses Harry's internal monologue is fantastic. And uh, this is where, again, we get another throwback to something that you could very easily forget. You know, the demon came closer, lightning eyes gleaming through the hell-lit gloom. Victor was shorter than me, stockier, better at wrestling, and he hadn't been shot in the hip. He levered me up and almost threw me, but I moved quicker, whipping my right arm at his head and catching him with the flailing free end of Murphy's handcuffs, breaking his motion. Thank God for Murphy's goddamn handcuffs. They're really coming in handy here. You know, he tried to break away, but I held on to him, dragged him into circle to slam against the guardrail of the balcony, and we toppled over. You know, they're hanging off the balcony. 
And there are scorpions down below that are getting bigger and bigger. And they're, they're, they're fighting. I know. And, you know, he's, I wouldn't allow Victor to get out of this. He was, if he was still whole, if he could knock the demon down, he might slip out. So I had to tell him something that would make him mad enough to try to take my head off. Hey, Vic, I shouted. It was your wife. It was Monica that ratted on you. The words hit him like a physical blow. This is our distraction moment. He's using his, he's, he's manipulating Vic. He's using the truth to distract him and the demon attacks him. And he, Which, and, sorry. And, well, and, and that's just a description, the description of what he does. He, he started to say something to me, the words of a spell meant to blow me to bits maybe, but the toad demon interrupted him by rearing up with an angry hiss and snapping its jaws down over Victor's collarbone and throat. Bone broke with audible snaps and Victor squealed in pain, his arms and legs shuddering. He tried to push his way down, away from the demon, and the creature's balance wobbled. We've got scorpions jumping up, and there's blood running down Victor's body. The demon probably hit an artery. The dude's gonna blow up. He's gonna, gonna bleed out. And Victor starts cutting at, you know, kicking at his hand, trying to get him to fall down. And then we have our... We're... we're they say when you die, your life flashes before your eyes and you, you realize all of the things that you regret. He, he says, Murphy, I thought I should have listened to her, to you. If the scorpions didn't kill me, the demon would. And if the demon didn't, the fire was going to kill me. I was going to die. I found myself in my final seconds, idly wishing that I could have had time to apologize to Murphy, that I could apologize to Jenny Sells for killing her daddy, that I could apologize to Linda Randall for not figuring things out fast enough to save her. Murphy's handcuff lay tight and cold against my forearm as monsters and demons and black wizards and smoke closed in all around me. I closed my eyes. Murphy's handcuffs. My eyes snapped open. Murphy's handcuffs. He uses the handcuffs and he clicks it onto the metal of the guardrail. He's got help in Murphy in her handcuffs. So he's hanging with the, by the handcuff on the guardrail. Victor falls over. There's a rush of scuttling, clicking sounds, a piercing whistle hiss from the demon. Victor screams as if something high-pitched and horrible until he sounded more like an animal, a pig squealing at slaughter than a man. Just great. Just fantastic. Again, we're using all our senses. We've got the scuttling of the feet. We've got the screaming. You know, we've got the heat of the fire. You've got the all of the sounds and all of the energy rushing through. It's fantastic. The descriptions are amazing. And our hero is saved by a handcuff, which is fantastic. And Victor is getting poked and prodded with uh, scorpion tails, the size or stingers rather, the size of ice picks. His wounds are fo foaming with poison. Fun. Oh yeah, and then the demon begins tearing him apart. It's a one-two punch. So lovely. And then you know he's. Realize he's getting weaker. He doesn't want to burn up. And then you start, he said, you know, you notice odd things in those final moments, they say. And then you start seeing things. For instance, I saw Morgan come through the sliding glass doors leading in from the outside deck. The silver sword of the White Council's justice in his hands. I saw one of the scorpions, now the size of a German shepherd, figure out, how, figure out the scares, stairs, scuttle up them, and hurdle up Morgan. I saw Morgan's silver sword slash, snickersack and leave the scorpion in writhing pieces on the floor. 
Then I saw Morgan, his expression grim, his weight making the fire chewed balcony shutter come for me. It's just, and then, you know, before he passes out, he says, typical was my last thought. How perfectly typical to survive everything the bad guys could do and get taken down by the people whose cause I had been fighting. This is one of those rare ends of a pair, ends of a chapter that he's not being snarky. And I love it because it is, he almost died. He had to be rescued. It's kind of a big deal. So I do want to touch on, you know, early in the chapter, he says he's using Monica as a weapon against Victor. Mm-hmm. And early in the chapter, he says, oh, I don't want to give him, you know, Monica's name because if he escapes and, you know, he can hurt her still. And then later in the chapter, he uses Monica to piss him off. Um, it's not quite as blatant or as sexist as some of the other stuff. But when we talk about the male gaze being women are, men do, he's mm. u- literally using her as a weapon, you know, and at the end, disregarding her safety because it's just, it, it doesn't, it's, again, it's not as egregious as some of the other stuff in the book. I just, it's just interesting that in the same, within, you know, 15 pages, he goes from, oh, I can't say her to, hey, Victor, it was your wife, you know, ha ha. The um, circumstances change. They do. They do. Certainly. Pretty significantly. Um, and I, I get it. It's just, it's just interesting. Well, it is, it is, but it, 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 it's, it is an interesting tool. It's an interesting ploy. All right. Good, sir. Chapter 27. Yeah, so um, obviously this kind of just wraps everything up. Um, you know, he wakes up from Morgan doing him doing CPR. Um, says he needs a gallon of Listerine, but he'll be all right. Um, you know, tells Morgan, "Why'd you save me?" And Morgan's like, "Cause you weren't guilty." And again, Morgan is just such a one-track guy that a member of the White Council was in danger. He risked his life to fight the Shadow Man, and he wasn't guilty, so he saved him. Obviously, he saved him. Um, and Harry says, so that would make me right. And that would make you <laughs> more than willing to you know, cut your head off if I need to. Um, but uh, you know, Morgan's going to have to go in front of the White Council and tell them what Harry did. And conveniently, the White Council is gathering in about you know, five, five or six hours from now. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry now finally, finally gets to the uh, hospital. Uh, Murphy comes out of her, uh, you know, critical condition after a couple days mm-hmm. the beckett's get arrested for being naked on a street in um lake providence eventually they get tied into the the uh drug ring um victor and cal shazak uh, met the pointy end of a scorpion and um yeah so harry says he bought murphy flowers and uh, they must have helped because when she woke up when she woke up the first thing she did was walk down the hall and throw him in his face uh, and then go back to her room. So she's not quite over him being um, lying to her. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a good good little you know summary of what happened. Um, I do like where he says, um, you know, he uh, he sent pizza out to uh, toot toot every day for a week, mm-hmm. and then once a week after, um, the pizza express delivery driver probably thinks he's crazy, but I don't care. Heck with him. I make good on my promises. Um, they love. He got his beetle back. Uh, Mac got his uh, Trans Am back. Mister got a little shortchanged on the whole deal, but it is well beneath his dignity to know <laughs> such things. Um, and this chapter, I really like. Again, it's kind of the, the, it's like the thesis statement, kind of 
uh, for the for the series. And me, what did I get out of it? I'm not really sure. I escaped from something that had been following me for a long time. I'm just not sure what. I'm not sure who was more certain that I was a walking antichrist waiting to happen. The conservative branch of the White Council? The men like Morgan? Or me? For them, at least, the question has been partly laid to rest. For myself, though, I'm not so sure. The power's there. The temptation's there. That's just the way it's going to be. I can live with that. Um, and that's who Harry is. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he does good things. It's it's like uh, uh, you know, works versus faith kind of thing. Discussion of Calvinism uh, versus Catholicism. It's like, uh, is he a good guy because he does good things? You know, with this darkness in him, or is he a bad guy because he has this temptation for this power and he wants to do these bad things? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's just an interesting kind of uh, you know little deal in there. Um, and you know, eventually Murphy got out of the hospital, and she called him up for a case a couple weeks later. And um, I guess they're friends again, in a work sense at least. They, they don't joke anymore. Again, that you know, that broken trust is just going to be difficult to repair. Um, but yeah, um, it was a good, good. But that's that's one of his, you know, where you you keep talking about how he needs to be punished for things, and that's oh, that's absolutely one of his punishments. That's, and you know, obviously, it's for the lies, but it's also kind of for treating her like less than. Exactly, which led to the lies, and that, and again, you know, we'll touch on this a li- in a little bit. When we kind of go through some analysis on the the problematic parts of this, but like, it it shows the intent of the author to play the male gaze, to play the chauvinism as a flaw. It gets punished, it gets him into trouble. Mm-hmm. I'm just not quite sure it's enough. Um, and there's a line in this chapter that I absolutely despise. Um, ugh. Where he's talking about, he gets another, uh, you know, uh, Susan's article, Date with a Demon, was huge. Mm. Um, got her some more pub with the uh, Chicago Arcane, the Midwestern Arcane. Um, and he used the sympathy fa- factor to badger another date out of her. And she didn't seem to mind too much. And this is just... That time, we were not interrupted by a demon. And I didn't need any of Bob's love potion or advice. Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, actually, this just hit me. That sounds like something Xander would say. Oh, yeah. And Buffy. Yeah, and it's the same kind of time frame. It's the same... Dumb lo- high school boy. It's just a dumb 25. But again, like, it's comparing Bob's advice to a fucking love potion that steals your agency and yeah. leads to rape. Like, yeah. those aren't the same... That's not, that's not a sentence that makes... There's no equivalency there. It's no. just the same treatment of the love potion that they go through this entire novel. It just, they don't even think of it as icky. They think of it as kind of funny. And it's just and, so yeah. fucked up. I hate that. Well, and that, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, in all lore where there's potions and love potions and love spells, it's just, they're creepy. They're uncomfortable. And, you know, and one of the things, you know, in his ad, he says no love potions. And that's great. No love potions, no love spells or whatever it is. And, but then it's like, but then you do it. Well, I think he has that in his, in his pod, just, or his, uh, ad just because it's, it's exhausting. He doesn't want to deal with the effort and the trouble, not because love potions are inherently fucked up. 
And creepy. Ugh. Just creepy. Um, so, um, yeah, let's get into some breakdown here. All right. So that is the end of the novel. Um, you know, our first foray into the Dresden Files. Um, so now this is how the pod's going to work from here on out. This is all you've gotten so far in um, in Dresden. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. So what uh, what are your feelings walking away from book one, and you know, kind of your thoughts moving forward? And do you have any questions on how stuff works? And you know, kind of what? Let me know where you're at. This is your first time. You uh, want to keep going? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I am enjoying it. Um, there are, you know, like we said, there are elements that are like, ah. but again, I'm big on world building and I really appreciate the world building here. Um, but like, you know, like I asked earlier about the music, like, is that a reoccurring thing? Um, the other thing that I really am curious about where we come into Max uh, when he's on his way to save the world, as one does, and he discusses uh the people that are there he says they were the have nots of magical i have this all highlighted sorry they were have nots of magical community hedge magi without enough innate talent motivation or strength to be true wizards innately gifted people who knew what they were and tried to make as little of it as possible dabblers herbalists holistic healers kitchen witches troubled youngsters just touching on their abilities and wondering what to do about it are these people obviously they're they're important enough to be mentioned here but is it is this just a one-off? Is this like where, you know, you come into the room and, oh, look at all these people here. You describe all the people and it was just kind of to add to that scene. Or is this something that we might at least revisit on the, on the fringes? So I, I think it's, it's just like every other skill set magic. You know, we mm-hmm. talk about, um, he even mentions, you know, why, there's so much magic floating around because Victor's not very good at magic. And we talked about that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, la- and he uses it. Last week. So, um, something that our mom used to do and still does, whenever we watch a TV show or a movie that she's already watched, <laughs> she'll watch it and she'll figure out, she'll solve the mystery as she's going through it, but she'll do it out loud. And she's uh-huh. already seen it, but, and we haven't. And she'll spoil it, but it'll be like, oh, I think he's the killer. Like, mom, you've seen this one. You know he's the killer. <laughs> so I think I might have the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I think I might have done that with that idea of, uh, you know, more powerful wizards are more efficient with their magic, um, uh-huh. kind of subconsciously, because they do mention that in that last um or second to la- third to last chapter there, um, where Victor's not very good at magic, so there's a lot of excess energy floating around, kind of the wasted, mm-hmm. the excess, um, which is just uh, funny. But so, you know, I talked about the more, the better a wizard is, the less excess, you know, the, the more efficient they are um, uh-huh. with their power. Um, but it's just like anything else, you know, there's different levels. So there are people with some magical talent. Uh, remember okay. when he sees the kid uh, who's on the, the three eye junkie? He says, "I didn't feel any magical pa- talent. There was no." They, he he gets like a little a little tingle when he touches another practitioner, um, and that can happen even if they they only have a tiny bit of magic. So it's it basically the idea is like the the White Council is a pretty high bar. So there's a lot okay. of sorcerers and talents, you know, middling and 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 low ability talents that don't qualify 
to be wizards of the white council like being a it's it's a it's like a certification basically but like it is a, it's a high bar to cross like the white council means you're okay. powerful as fuck like people are scared of wizards like a jedi master kind of sitch yeah like someone who's a little force sensitive you know um there are characters like that you know like the witches of dathomir okay. a lot of those but also just you know someone who has a little bit of sensitivity versus someone who has enough power to be a Jedi. Like, a similar idea that gotcha. um, you got a little more midichlorians than the next guy, but not enough to really do anything with it. Um, and that's kind of how that works. So there, there are, you know, just, there's just like, you know, they're like the uh, JV high school football players uh, going to, you know, and the NFL boys are in town doing stuff, you know, like it's, it's Harry's okay. the pro and they're just guys who have a little bit of knowledge and experience. Um, just happened to be there yeah and but max is a safe place for people like that um you gotcha. know you certainly you're still the other to everyone else even you're that's actually yeah. got to be a really tortured like you're kind of like uh squibs you know it's where you're in that world but not of that world you know you're, you're kind mm -hmm. of stuck in between so they they rely on harry almost more than the average joe does because most people don't believe in magic right these people yeah know what's going on and that's fucking way more terrifying. Um, they know, especially if you can't do yeah, anything. They know about what it. goes bump in the night. They just can't do a thing about it. So that you'll, they'll often be you know, kind of trying to get to Max for protection or at least you know like-minded hiding with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it does come up quite a bit. Um, okay. Where Harry wants, you know, Harry's. It's basically his job. You know, he puts it on himself to take care of these people. Which makes sense because it's sort of his vibe, his energy. Yeah. And uh, the other thing you mentioned about music, um, mm -hmm. there's without being too spoilery, there are people who experience magic and specifically the sight differently than other people. Um, mm -hmm. Which I like because one of the things that you know, uh, the butcher's version of magic kind of it f touches on all the sights, all the the senses rather. Right, like you think uh -huh. about making a potion involves you know all five senses and then your your mind and your heart or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of the magic is that way. It takes all of you, and so okay. the music may not be magical, but it it you know it, it, it's vibes. You know, it's important to what you do. And yeah, and you know, you when he's experiencing the sight, he sees and smells different things. Other people will hear things more or experience them in different ways. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very, it's a very cool, the nature of magic in this world where it is even for magic, it's otherworldly, you know, it's, it's, it's a very new kind of fresh take on it, which I think is really a cool, cool bit of lore. Um, the circles and kind of coming full circle with how you can be, you know, all the different ways you can use a magic circle was really cool. Um, the mm -hmm. names coming back up, you know, again, in the climax, the two big things are Harry knows more about circles and he knows more about names than the guy. And that's really what put him over the top and helped him win was just being a better wizard um, at the end of the day. Having that knowledge and having, you know, that understanding of all of the things involved, he really that he won the day because of that. That's very true. And, and that was that's we you know we keep going on and on about the world building and the creation of all of the, the this lore that we're learning about and it's that mo those moments are they basically this is our reward that scene was our reward for our understanding 
Yeah, for paying attention to to those those things because it means you you get a little bit more. You understand a little bit about what the hell's going on. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was great. this. Was it this one? Um, where he talks about magi, but certainly um, Marcone calls him a magus, um, which is the uh, singular of magi, which is where kind of the magic, the word magic and magi have the same you know base, yeah. obviously, um, and that's you know the three wise men. From uh, you know Christian folklore, um, magi are, are magi, magi yeah. are wise men, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that's kind of what magic is. You know, we talk about he's doing the magical forensic, you know, the magical physics and the, the, all the study work of magic. You know, the nuts and bolts of magic aren't sexy, but it's knowing and being prepared, and that's that's really what puts him over the top as a wizard, as a magician. Is he's prepared knowledge. He's a magi. He's a magus. He's, Knowledge he's, is power. Exactly. And power is power too, obviously. Yeah. Oh, obviously. I mean, Vic- and then and the combination of the two is where where he Yeah, kind of but Victor Victor looks Victor good. was you know, certain maybe not a, a a peer and equal, but certainly on on the level of Harry as far as power, but he was completely outclassed. He didn't know how to control completely him. outclassed on his knowledge by Harry. Mm-hmm. And the, it's the control, it's the knowing the, the knowing, just in general, the knowing, the knowing what you can and cannot do, the knowing how it works with what. Yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. I love it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, those are kind of my my big thoughts um, on the lore and the kind of the analysis part of it. Um, any other thoughts there? I do want to you know spend a few minutes going back over our yike yikes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean that again. It, We've gone back and forth on this. Um, the male gaze. We've talked about the male gaze where men are the powerful acting beings in art and women are the sexualized things. Um, and that is so prevalent here. Um, it's so prevalent in noir historically. Um, the flip side of that, the flip side of... Um women are only the sexual creatures in this book. I just kind of hit me because one of the things that happens in, in literature and in noir is that the women who control their own sex life are punished women, women who are sexual beings on their own, not through the eyes of male are, are punished. Both of our escorts are murdered. Oh yeah. You've got that Murphy who is her own woman doesn't set, you know, doesn't step back and let the man be the man. He's got two, she's got two ex-husbands. Exactly. She almost dies. So it's just an interesting kind of, but the women who went along, uh, Mrs. Beckett, she ends up arrested a little bit to Monica where Monica was, you know, she was looped into this drug trade shit. And, but when she pushed back, she had to go into, you know, witness protection. It's an, this it's just some, this is sort of just something that popped into my head where it's just like the women who step out of that male gaze are being punished. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's, but again, it's a noir trope. Yeah. No, it's, noir it's, it's trope. A noir trope well. And there's so many other noir tropes in this that it's very clear that he was trying to make it noir. Right? I mean, like so many of the yeah. lines are so cheesy. Um, you know, about we're going to shut your, that mouth of yours. 
Permanently. Permanently. Um, you know, this here, the I'll, 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 Dick I'll, Tracy villain. I'll slap you in the handcuffs and send you downtown so fast you'll make your head spin. Um, yeah. You know, like just shit that is like so cliche and overdone. Yeah. But it's so, again, it, it's, it fits the theme. And so, you know, again, I, I, I'm not a writer. I, I keep saying that because it's important to note that I'm not arguing. Again, I think this is a masterfully crafted piece of you know, literature um, as far mm-hmm. as the storytelling, it, it, you know, the, the way it's written. But that sexism, that chauvinism is meant to be a character flaw. I think it truly is meant to be a character flaw that the world recognizes as a flaw and is punished. And that's how you write flawed characters. You're allowed to have flaws, but mm-hmm. you can't pretend it's okay. You have to acknowledge yeah. the flaw. They have to have some sort of pushback from that flaw. Um, that's yeah. how you have interesting gray characters. Um, they can't just get away with it and nobody notices or cares. Then it's bad writing. And I think yeah. in this case, his goal was to lampshade Harry's a chauvinist douchebag in a noir setting. Da, 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 da. I just don't think yeah. it was elegant enough. He wasn't shown to be wrong enough. And I think mm-hmm. their understanding and treatment of the love potion really shows that they just missed the mark. I think it was well-intentioned, yes. which matters. It does matter. It doesn't matter equally to what the, the, the point was, right? I mean, you screw up, you screw up. But it does matter that he, I think it was written to be a character flaw to show kind of the noir. It was the lampshade, the noir chauvinist down on his luck, private dick, you know, like it was yeah. to show this is it, ridiculous. But yeah, and it, but it, it also was to it was to provide, you know, and this again, I'm just I, I don't know what Jim Butcher was actually trying to do. We're guessing, but, you the know, death of the author, it doesn't matter what he was trying to do. I, that's, I, that's I want to say what what it looks like happened yes what what it what i see is that it was the the structure of the story was the noir Mm -hmm. you know you've got your good guy bad guys two stories that you know don't look like they belong together and they come together and you've got the women the femme fatales who are coming in and my husband's missing you know shit like that that drags them into these stories drags them into the the um the hot water i suppose you could say uh and but it's the you've got the noir tropes but what he does with it is he you're right he does get punished and we have this realistic kind of hero with a sense of humor and he's not an anti-hero because he isn't doing bad but he isn't the shiny superman hero uh where he's you know just all 100% good not not a bit of gray area uh and that and that I appreciate I do appreciate how it's done how it's written and I hope that that Masterful essence of gray remains throughout the the series. Yeah, and again, that's we my want hope. nuanced characters. We don't want a bunch of Superman running around, you know, just being perfect and mm-hmm. crushing. You know, we want nuance. We want character flaws. We want growth. Um, I, I, he just, I think it wasn't. The word I keep using is it wasn't elegant enough. He he was trying to do something very difficult and thread the needle of. This character's sexist, but we know sexism is wrong. And he, mm-hmm. he didn't do the second half well enough, I don't think. And so, you know, like I said, I, I, in some places he did. In some places it feels like he did. Again, I, I think with, I really do feel like, mm-hmm. Ma, again, and this is a disagreement. Again, your lived experience is valid and different than mine. 
Um, I feel like Bob does thread that needle where he's so over the top that it is played to be we're in on the joke with Harry. It just looks like this is Jim Butcher's worldview, which I'm pretty sure it's not based on his other writings and, you know, all I've heard about the guy and you know heard him say. So I think it's just not done elegantly enough. And again, that doesn't mean we ignore that it's a problematic. I think we Why can give him some this, credit for it. You know. Yeah, I think we can give him some credit, but also recognize that it's not good enough and it really needs to be acknowledged. The treatment of sex work in this, you know, is just atrocious. But that is um, also for the time period because in 2000, I mean, that was the beginning of, of, you know, sex work is work, that kind of campaign where it's just trying to protect sex workers rather than criminalize them. Oh, sure. And again, it's, I don't think it's so far out of the realm of, you know, time and place. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't make it, again, it doesn't make no, it. Okay. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, but, um, I think about it. Is there a single character of color in this entire novel? I, I picture Morgan as a big black dude. Fair enough. With white hair. Um, yeah. Not quite like Blade. Have. Not quite like Blade. But like a just um, a big wizened old man with white hair. Who but who he's wizened, but he's not old necessarily. Yeah. Wizened? Wizened. Is it wizened? I don't know. I've only ever read that word. There's uh, there will constantly be words and I don't know what how to pronounce them because I've only learned them in reading because I read too much. And our older sister actually makes fun Ma of me for that. Marcer says, <laughs> is it kite chitinous? He says chitinous all the time for like chitinous plates. I thought it was chitinous, but mm -hmm. for like, you know, like insects. I, there's a couple words that Marcer says differently than I said. I'm not saying right or wrong. I do know that Spellslinger was wrong, but um, I, I've already, uh, I started listening to the next one. Came, that word came up a couple times. Um, opalescent, you're going to, Look for opalescent. That word comes up all the time okay. uh, in the series, and it bugs me every time now. Um, beyond that, um, yeah, I mean, it's a problematic first effort. It's, I think, well-intentioned. The storytelling, the world building is, is you know, unmatched mm -hmm. uh, for a first effort. Um, the story flows pretty well. There's a couple of bouts of, you know, expositionitis that aren't great. Um, the false conflict in act two to break up Murphy and Dresden was just unnecessary. They were already in a fight. You could have just extended that fight over the line. Uh, didn't... But, but it was his punishment. Oh, sure. But you could have done it for a different reason than, Oh, I don't want to answer that. Cause then she'll ask questions like, yeah, then you answer the question and we're not fighting anymore. Um, but you know, it could have just been that you went to see her and she could have just been mad that he went to see her. You know what I mean? Like, she, I get her being, I get her side. I just don't get Harry not talking about not it. Not being honest. Again, the point was to put Harry on his own for the climax. Of course, of course. Him, and that that worked great. The, the climax was great. Act three, I thought, was nearly flawless, except for that love potion uh, hiccup at the end. Um, no, the talking about her delicate little lady hands was not flawless. Um, yeah. Not great, not great. But yeah, so I, again, it, uh, an imperfect but excellent, I'd say. Um, certainly, you know, in the B range, B plus, I'd call it. It's not the best novel ever written. It's certainly problematic in places. Um, and again, that is something that there are a lot of women who can't come to grips with this series. Um, it's that it's not bad. It took me. It, no, you're not gonna lie. It took me time to get into it because it was just like, oh dear God. Oh, and then I started, you know, paying when I let the, I let the audiobook run. I think I was 
driving um, when I was moving. I, I was driving and I was listening to it and it, I let the audiobook run. And then I got into it because it did take me some getting into because it was just like, oh, God, you know, the, when he talks about how good her legs are probably look, even though he's never seen her in a skirt. I was just like, are we kidding? Are we are, are we for real here? So, yeah. Um, but no, I, and so I understand. I understand why it could be hard um, because it is kind of a bit odd. Much. much. Yeah. All right. Love it. What uh, did you have as your quote of the week? This isn't necessarily like a whole quote, but it's like my little part uh, that really just made me giggle. Uh, so it's it's Harry saying, Harry saying, I was too hospitalized to show up at the meeting of the White Council. But it turned out that they decided to lift the Duma Damocles, which I had always thought of as a rather pretentious name in my case, for me, due to valorous action above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, this, the, I was too hospitalized, was fantastic. I mean, I enjoy it. Yeah. It's great. So mine is basically cheating, because it's the last paragraph in the book, but it's just so good. Uh, <laughs> my name is Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden. Conjure it at your own risk. When things get strange, when what goes bump in the night flicks on the lights, when no one else can help you, give me a call. I'm in the book. Just so good. So good. Do you have a crackpot theory this week? I, I, my crackpot theory is I still think, I still think Marcone is a supernatural being. He protected Harry through all of this and after this, like, come on. Like, he's, I mean, he's got something going on. He's got some manipulation powers. My, my idea on that. Um, I do think Harry might have some level of psychic. It probably is rooted in his third eye because he sees things that normal people don't. Um, okay. I kind of like that one. And my last one, I don't think Max human. Nobody's human in this series, huh? But, <laughs> what? but I think it's supernatural, like supernatural beings, like power, like, like Marconi isn't just a normal human being. Like he's got some power. It's not like, and not just like social power. He's got like some, some, it's your supernatural power, but I don't think Mac is human. I think Mac is some sort of troll or something. Okay. That's uh, my. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Like. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Awesome. It's great. That's not even all that crack potty. No. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it is a little out there. Oh, I love it. Um. So, yeah. So thank you guys for sticking with us. That is the end of book one of the Dresden Files. Stormfront by Jim Butcher. Um, it was a fun read. We're looking forward to it. Uh, next week, we will have out for you the first chunk. I think we're going to do four um, chunks for Full Moon. We're going to go chapters one through eight for Full Moon uh, Full Moon next week. Um, and we'll get into it. I'm excited. Again, there's a, there's a crime scene early on that I want to get your take on. <laughs> um, there is, uh, you know, more tension between our hero and uh everyone because that's <laughs> <laughs> nice Harry can't get through anything without tension um and you know the world just grows a little bit each novel so i'm very excited to get into that not like gonna lie i've already listened to the first couple chapters today as i was getting excited for this nice. um and then um yeah you know we, we're uh 
somehow every day people are still downloading listening to our dumb asses um which i'm <laughs> hey, very excited about my dumb ass and your, and your clever ass you're witty um, and lovely but I, I we really appreciate you know the support and the love um yes definitely um you know have any any questions or you know you want to get a question on the on the pod shoot us an email at the podcast was on fire at gmail.com um the single best most helpful thing you can do for our podcast is to give us a rating and a review on any of your favorite podcast places. I know Apple Podcasts makes it real easy. I'm not an Apple guy, but for podcasts, I actually do like Apple Podcasts for that exact reason. Um, it's just easy to look at, find stuff, and it's easy to put in uh, reviews. But review us, give us some stars. However many stars you think is appropriate. Five! <laughs> um, and um, I just, we're, we're very excited to have you. So um, yes. thank you so much. Um, we move on, um, you know, looking at the good, the great, and the problematic in the Dresden Files. Um, I have been Josh. And I'm Alyssa. And the podcast was on fire. And it wasn't my fault. Thanks for listening.